those who do not have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. True power lies with those who can control their own story. You are the story that you tell yourselves. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. It's easy to get um, stuck in the detail and in the process and, and forget that at the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then onto the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Our heritage has shaped who we are as a people and a place today. In this series, we celebrate the stories of Auckland, the Pacific, and beyond. I'm Mark Gosper, and this is the Heritage Talks podcast. Kia ora koutou, and welcome back. One of the motivations behind this research was a determination that official statistics were not revealing a true picture of the actual population of New Zealand's towns and cities, but rather something of a myth. Traditional wisdom has it that Auckland, that New Zealand had more people living in towns than the country in the 1911 census, if you counted only Europeans, or 1916, if you included Maori, as of course you must. However, that was based on very faulty definitions of what was urban. So what does that do for this kind of myth of New Zealanders as country bumpkins at root who gradually moved into the towns? Uh-uh, false. Hugh looks at definitions used to determine how data was collected and defined to question the accuracy of long-held claims attributed to it. Early population statistics were taken by electoral district, a measure which didn't necessarily correspond with the towns as we know them or as they were. Hugh begins by examining Auckland's reported 1867 population of 11,000. Haramai Tietahi Ahua. The only problem was we knew how many people lived in the whole electorate, but how many lived in the bit we would call Auckland? the Auckland suburbs, and how many lived in the wild blue yonder? Well, only one way to find out, and that was to print out the electoral rolls from the day and go through them name by name by name to see where the different one lived. Of course, none of you ladies, I'm sorry, would have been on the electoral roll back then. Not all the men would have been either, depended on... Uh, the property you had as to whether you qualified, which is why some of the leading lights in Auckland of the day, you will find their names on three or four different electoral rolls. Everywhere they owned property, ah, they had the right to vote. So it wasn't a complete list of people, but we took the assumption that suppose a third of the people on the electoral roll lived in Auckland, therefore it is likely the third, that a third of the population of the electorate lived in Auckland. And from some different exercises we've done, that seems to be reasonably good estimation. So, having done that exercise for uh, the, the parts of those three electorates, we came up with another 7,000 people. 
Add them all together, and what was the real size of Auckland? 28,000. A far cry from the official data, 11,000. Now, this was not just the case in Auckland. It was repeated throughout the country. Christchurch was the most extreme example. Because the Christchurch city electorate didn't even cover all the central city, let alone any suburbs. Even down to the smaller places, this happened for many years. Basically through to about 1900-odd, we had this problem, and much longer in some places. So, let's imagine for a moment that you were alive in Auckland in January 1867. Actually, you wouldn't have been a very happy person, probably. Why not? Because Auckland was rather in the economic doldrums at the time. Because not long before, we'd lost the capital to Wellington. So, all the imperial troops that were stationed up the road here, and Albert Barracks, they all disappeared, along with their pay packets. Various colonial administrators, they also disappeared, along with their pay packets. So although Auckland was doing okay in some ways and still growing, nevertheless, the economic situation was not wonderful. However, if you had been alive in, Auck in Auckland in August 1867, aha, you were sure to have a smile on your face. Because not too far away, a major discovery took place. What was that? Gold? Whereabouts? Thames. Right. Okay. And Auckland, of course, became the supply center for the Thames goldfield. So benefited financially very much from that. The only problem, of course, all the people who toddled off from Auckland to Thames to make their fortune was that the gold there was not just sitting waiting for the picking, like in the South Island. It wasn't alluvial gold in the, you know, on the riverbanks and so on. Instead, the gold was in the quartz veins in the rock. And so the rock had to be crushed, first of all, to be able to get out the gold and the silver. And that took quite a bit of technology. Now, uh, it's not quite so easy to see on the top right there, a very early photo of Thames, and you notice a lot of tents around at that stage. But it wasn't very long before Thames became the most industrialized town in the country. Notice all the tall chimneys there, the smokestacks. They were the powerhouses for the stamper batteries, which crushed the rock. In fact, they went 24 hours a day, six days a week. Now, imagine the racket they made with so many of them in the town, particularly towards the northern part, uh, the Grahamstown end of Thames. You could hardly hear yourself think. But you know, the funny thing is that the people in Thames said, oh, on Sunday, when they don't work, it's so quiet, we can't think properly. You can't have it both ways. Well, uh, Thames grew more and more quickly 
than any other town in New Zealand has ever grown. In the 1867 census, there was nobody there. It didn't exist. By the next one in 1871, there were just over 10,000 people in Thames. That is an amazing growth. And you, you have to be careful what you read online. You will see in some data on Thames, it, it tells you they will boast Thames was for a while the largest place in New Zealand. Nonsense. Never was. But it was number five. It was the biggest town in the country outside the four main centres, and that's pretty good. Not many towns can manage that. And 10,000 was a decent size back in those days. As the gold ran out, so did the people, right down to the time of the Second World War. Then, after the war, Thames kind of reinvented itself as an uh, industrial engineering centre, building railway rolling stock, even engines, A&G Price, Charles Judd. Uh, then the, later there was the Toyota factory. And, of course, pushed along by the highest birth rate we'd ever seen post-war. And uh, the post-war baby boom, so that helped too. And Thames became increasingly a service centre for a pretty big hinterland. But then, from the late... 70s onwards, it kind of plateaued in size, as did many provincial towns. But when you consider that a lot of the old gold mining towns, once the gold ran out, they pretty well vanished off the map. But Thames didn't. It'll never have as many as 10,000 people again, I don't think. But it's done pretty well for itself to still today be a, a very viable economic unit and town and so on. So it's, it's done pretty well. One of the interesting things that we could do once we found out what was the real size of the towns through history was to work out what we called seasons of growth. When did the different towns grow? We divided New Zealand history into three approximately 50-year periods. That, when I say history, I mean colonial history. Before 1911, then up to the 61 census, and then up to our last census in 2013. Sorry, can't update you to the, the eight, 2018 one yet, because the other day we got the first figures out, but not at a lower level. So uh, that doesn't help. And suppose we represented this in a diagram. The blue represents the growth that took place in the town and the early period, orange the middle, and yellow the later. So, let's have a look first of all at what we might call early bloomers. Towns that bloomed and grew early on in New Zealand's history. Well, one of the classic ones was Dunedin. Notice the huge amount of growth, the majority of it, in the early years, not that much in the last 50. Now, why did Dunedin grow so much, so early. Right? The Otago Gold Rush. Dunedin, as a result of that, became the financial capital of New Zealand at the time. Then we can have a look at mid-bloomers, those towns that bloomed and grew in the middle period of our colonial history. And I guess we should include Wellington here, because its biggest proportion of growth just was in that middle period. 
about the late bloomers? Well, oddly enough, we need to include Auckland here, even though Auckland has always been the largest town in New Zealand, except for about eight years, when it was overtaken by another city. Who overtook Auckland, do you reckon, at one point? Dunedin, yes, it nudged ahead. Two censuses, then Auckland overtook it again. So even though we've always basically been the largest centre, we've had such a huge growth in the last 50 years that it's kind of squeezed back the blue proportion, the growth in the early years. Then we come to the fastest growing city in New Zealand. Where's that? Right, Tauranga. What about that first 50? You can barely see it. It was a very small town for a very long time. But an enormous growth in the last 50 years. What about, oh, just before I do that, there was another way we worked out of measuring the relative ages of towns. Nothing to do with when was it started. But you know how you drive into some towns, you think, man, this place looks really old. Other towns you drive into and you think, oh, this looks a really modern place. It was that kind of thing. And we discovered that if you work out how long has it taken the population to double in each place up until the last census data we were using. Very revealing, because it speaks something of the age of a town. So here are the oldest ones. Hokitika, centre of the West Coast Gold Rush, that was first, there's Thames, 1868. It's taken all that time to double in size. Omaru, Greymouth, Dunedin, they're the oldies, if you like, in New Zealand. That's a, a simple little way of determining the relative ages of towns. Now, what about the main centres? Well, we'll start with Auckland. This is not actually a population graph as such. Instead, it shows what proportion of the population of New Zealand lived in each town, which is a, a better way to compare one town with another. So we started off in the early days, starts, starts in 1851, we had about 10% of the country's population. A sudden little boom there in the early 80s, followed by a bust. The only time Auckland ever lost population was in the five years about 6,000 people left Auckland. The major economic depression in the country through the 1880s into the 1890s affected Auckland far more than any other place in New Zealand. But since then, notice that our share of the country's population has just continued to climb and climb and climb until we've got about 30% of the population. Well. That will be adjusted upwards when the 2018 data is published at that level. The big mover, though, is Dunedin, because after the 1880s, notice it's just declined and declined in terms of its share of the country's population. Now, it's still growing in terms of numbers, but by this measure, it's, it's going relatively backwards the whole time. 
In fact, we know in recent years it's been overtaken by Hamilton and before the previous census, it was also overtaken by Tauranga. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means we have to change the terminology we use. Remember, for many years we talked about the four main centres. Uh-uh, you can't really talk about the four main centres anymore. Why? Because there aren't four main centres. We either have to talk about the three main centres, which I think is sensible, because let's face it, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch are much bigger than the others, or we do what TV One Weather does, and with their little maps, we include Hamilton, Tauranga, and Dunedin as well. So it's either three or six, but it's not four anymore, because patterns have changed. Population has changed over the years. Okay, then, some other things that makes Auckland unique, probably, you know, there are only seven towns in the whole of New Zealand that have a higher than average number of residents between age 20 and 39. And Auckland's one of them, of course. The others are all the university cities and Queenstown. So, notice we have nearly 30% more people aged 25 to 29 than the country as a whole. So we've got this great mass of surplus, if you like, of young people from 20 through to 40. Then it gradually goes down, and in fact we have considerably less proportion of older people in Auckland, as do most of the other um, big cities as well. Because, of course, a lot of the people, as they retire, move off out to the coastal settlements and so on. If we were to take the number of, if you like, surplus people in Auckland, the, the people more than you would expect if we were the same as the rest of New Zealand, persons aged 20 to 29, Auckland, 50,000 more people of that age than you would expect if we were the same as the country as a whole. Every other town in New Zealand has a deficit. They have fewer proportion at that young age. So you see a massive magnetism of the main centres for the young people. The only big place that's not there is Tauranga. And that's partly because it has no university and partly because there are so many older people in Tauranga, the oldest place in New Zealand, average, median age. If you take the age of 65 plus and look at the deficit Auckland has, wow, we're even in a stronger place. We have a, a huge proportion of the, the deficit of older people in Auckland. And then all the other towns combined, well, we outshadow them. So Auckland is certainly different age-wise than other places. I mean, you only need to walk out the door here and walk on the neighbouring streets. <laughs> and you see how true that is, don't you? Okay, now... We talked earlier about the fastest growing city in New Zealand, but I wonder about the fastest growing town. Next level down, not a provincial city, but nowadays a very considerable size town. Where do you think that would be? Right, Queenstown. 
without a doubt. And the populations basically stayed the same until 1961. And then locals began to invest in tourist infrastructure and the explosion began and is still going on. What about going back to our population doubling? We looked at the oldies, didn't we? What about the newbies? Well, Wanaka heads the list. It took only 12 years for Wanaka to double its population. Queenstown next, North Island, Kerry, Kerry. Tauranga's there. The other places are mainly growing rapidly because of their proximity to major centres, Auckland or, or Christchurch. So, a simple little way to, to uh, get the, the relative age of towns. Of course, not all towns grew as fast as, um, as fast as some of these ones. More typical, perhaps, we'll have a look at Taumanui on the main trunk line. Well, Taumanui was born, of course, when the main trunk line went through. Then again, after the war, as a service centre, but as early as the mid-60s, Taumanui hit its peak and began to decline. Now, why have Taumanui, Wairo, numerous other provincial centres seen such a decline? It's actually a number of factors. The obvious ones, of course, are, well, a freezing works closes down, or a large timber mill, or something of that nature. Yes, that's caused the beginning of the demise of some towns because it's difficult to replace the, uh, the, the number of jobs in a rural area. But it seems as though the biggest factor in the decline of provincial New Zealand towns is actually government policy from both governments. For example, removal of agricultural subsidies which was particularly a factor around Taumanu with extensive farming. To remain economic, a lot of farms had to combine, which meant there were fewer people working on the land. And as a result, of course, fewer people to go and spend their money in the local town. So that hit business. But then another government decided to centralise government departments. It's surprising how many even relatively smaller places did have government department offices. They didn't have a lot of people employed, but they were there. But once the government began to centralise them into places like Wangarei, Hamilton, Rotorua, they all did very well out of this exercise. But the smaller towns really suffered, and that includes the hospitals that used to be very vibrant. It's interesting in reading the article in the book by the guy from Taumanui, you can sense the grief, or the anger that was there in their hearts as a result of these government decisions and policies and the effect it had on these towns. In fact, to be honest, <laughs> what he sent in was a little bit blue. I had to edit it out and tone it down for publication, his view of the view of the people in the town as a result of that. But then there are other factors at work too. I think we probably underestimate the invasion of our living rooms in 1959 and its effect. 
What were we invaded with back then? Television. Well, it wasn't too many years before it had an effect on our young people. Young people had traditionally been happy to grow up in the town they were born in, live there for the rest of their life. Some obviously went away for further study and so on. But as they began to see the world outside like they'd never seen it before, it was like the grass looked greener on the other side. And we began to see a much greater migration of young people into the main centres than we had seen previously. Now that had a knock-on effect because in a very few years, where were the people of childbearing age? A significant number had left town and that meant the birth rates in a lot of these provincial centres went down considerably to the extent that today, in a number of places, the death rate is higher than the birth rate, so you get a natural decrease anyway. And that had a big effect. And so the population just continued one thing after another and snowballed as the decrease was there. Now, we'll find that when the lower-level census results are out in a couple of weeks, that we'll see some of these places turning the corner, partly due to the pressure of house prices in Auckland and people are looking for cheap housing and that's nearly always in the places that have seen the, uh, the most decline. So that will change a little but probably not a great deal. It will never get back to its peak again. Then there was another town in the Auckland province that thought it was going to be the next city in New Zealand. Back in the days when you needed 20,000 people to become a city, they almost got there. Over 19,000 people. And suddenly, it turned to custard. I wonder where that town was in the Auckland province. The problem was, this town was reliant on one major industry. Right, Tokoroa. Tokoroa, for a number of years, was the fastest growing town in New Zealand. And then, in the 1970s, for various economic reasons, they began to close down one machine after another at the Kinleith Mill. And look what happened to the population. And again, reading the article in the book by the two who sent it in from Tokoroa, you can sense there the hurt, the grief that was there in the town as they began to see shops closing as the population declined. As they began to discover, hey, there's not enough people to run our sports clubs anymore. They've left town. And then they were losing capital value on their houses. Apparently, all the senior management in the Kinleith Mill used to live in Tokoroa. But when they saw the capital value of their houses declining, they skipped town and lived in other towns and commuted in. So, um, they kept declining. And they will be another town that we will find has turned the corner in the last census. Because of the cheap housing, it's become an attraction for, for people because now people will commute for a long distance if required. So 
Tokoroa went backwards, as have many other places. Of course, there are also towns that were only built as temporary towns, construction towns, such as Mangakino, which went from nothing to 5,000 people when they were building the Waikato dams, and then just as quickly fell away afterwards. Mind you, they had a plan B. We'll become a retirement centre. However, just a few problems with Mangakino as a retirement centre. It's fairly isolated. The winter climate, well, you wouldn't describe it as A1. The nearest hospital and larger town, well, that's Tokoroa. So it didn't work out. They've now got about 700 people left in Mangakino. The only construction town that's done reasonably well post-construction was Turangi. They still lost most of their people, but it was sort of reinvented as a tourist centre. So they haven't done too badly for themselves. And declining populations have become the norm, almost. For many years, at least a third of our towns have declined in size between every census. In fact, when we had the big economic downturn a number of years back, over half of the towns in the country declined in size, including some of the biggies as well, even some of the main centres. Now, one of, probably the most revolutionary thing that came out of this research, if you like to use that word, was the division between urban and rural, country and town. Traditional wisdom has it that, Auckland, that New Zealand had more people living in towns than in the country in the 1911 census, if you counted only Europeans, or 1916, if you included Maori, as of course you must. However, that was based on very faulty definitions of what was urban. All that were counted officially in those days as urban was anybody who lived inside a city or borough boundary. But if you lived in a town district or in a county just across the, the city boundary, but you were really a suburb, uh-uh, you were classed as rural. What we have discovered from this research is that, in fact, we passed the 50% mark, or we, we got to the 50% mark in 1881 which is a lot sooner than the official data had it. 30 plus years earlier, by 1886, there were clearly more people living in towns than in the country. So what does that do for this kind of myth of New Zealanders as country bumpkins at root who gradually moved into the towns? Uh-uh, false. For nearly all of our colonial history, we've been a bunch of townies, or majority townies, put it that way. But when we split this down, ethnically, first of all, Maori. They were overwhelmingly rural in the early days. It wasn't till the time of the Second World War that there was the huge migration of Maori into the city. In fact, in the 35 years from 1936 to 71, the number of Māori in Auckland grew by 20 times. <laughs> That's a, a massive increase. In the same period, the number of non-Māori in Auckland increased 1.6 times. Māori, 20 times. So 
So we, Auckland, was the major beneficiary, if you like, from this massive migration of Maori into uh, towns. Now, where does that leave the non-Maori? Or, this only goes up to 1976, this one, so at that, up until then, we can basically say non-Maori was pretty much the same as European. Aha! Uh -huh. Quite a shock when we realise that in terms of non-Maori, we've always been a bunch of townies. In fact, in the very early days when the European settlers came, about two-thirds of them settled in the main towns. Gradually, as more land was opened up by fair means and foul, the number went down as more people went out farming in the distant areas, but it wasn't long before it grew again. So you can't, uh, can't just take the total. When we break it down, it's very revealing. Now, the book itself features 64 cities and towns. I did mention at the beginning, when I started out, I was wanting to find out, really, the size of the main centres through their history. But, you know, the trouble with research is this. You get addicted, and then you think, oh, hang on, there are some provincial cities, and we need to include them as well. Then, no, there are some, some big towns out there as well. Below that level, we better include them as well. So it was going to be 35 of them, everything down to the size of Thames. But then at the last moment, when I suddenly realised, people said, look, you've got so much things here, you need to publish in the book. Oh, well, there are quite a number of other significant towns too, so I added some more we got to 64. Had to draw the line somewhere. The somewhere was a town had to have had four and a half thousand people at some point in its history. So we ended up with 64 of them. Unfortunately, I didn't have enough room in the book to put articles on 64 towns. So there's only 50 of them. And they were all by local contributors because I thought, what's the point of me doing some reading and second-hand kind of writing, the copying down some stuff there, that's not from the heart. I want to get locals to write from their perspective as to why their town grew or didn't grew, some of the significant points. Lots of old photos. I love old photos. And so we've got the old photos, the modern photos, and some extremely well-written articles in, in there. That's the Auckland one there. Um, so... That's, that forms actually the majority of the book itself. And believe me, trying to get 50 people writing articles on their towns was no mean feat. If you ever try to do such a thing, can I give you a little tip? Do you know who the most influential person is in town? To approach the mayor's PA. When you, because you can't ask the mayor, who are you? But the mayor's PA. You know, we're writing this book and we've got articles, blah, blah, blah. It would be very sad. I, I can't find anybody at all to write it on X Town. It would be very sad if, if there was, you know, was missing. Right, they get onto it. In fact, they get somebody to do it you'd previously approached and no, they couldn't do it. But now they've got the, the mayor behind them. So we've got to go. So we got all those, those in. So some of them are, are extremely interesting there. Now, one question that people ask, of course, is, is Auckland too big? Well, I guess we need to let the figures speak for themselves. 
using the 2013 data, but updated to the latest boundaries, 2018, census population then over 1.2 million or the estimated resident population when you include census undercount and people away overseas and so on. They've got various methods of working this out. There we were. But you have to add the seven next largest centres together and they still haven't got as many people in, as, as Auckland. You could chuck in another Masterton to make it up. Which means Auckland's become what's known as a primate city. A city much bigger than the next biggest place in the country. About 30% of our population. Higher now once these new, this new data comes out. We're right up there in the world. We don't have half our population living in the biggest city like South Korea does. But with the next bracket down, we are right up there. So in the sense, <laughs> we're one of the leading in the world in terms of the concentration of population in one city. Just like for the urban, urbanization, we were number three in the world. England was first. Industrial Revolution, movement to the towns and so on. Australia and New Zealand both passed the mark in 1881. But they actually had a before and after a higher proportion in towns than we did. So I guess we're number three. So a world leader then it become the number of people living in towns. So that's interesting too. That uh, we're sort of right on the fringe, aren't we, in New Zealand in many different respects. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. Come back whenever you like and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the talk notes. Many guys have come to you with a line that wasn't true.